0: Welcome to JourneyWithJesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled, He's Subverting Our Nation, for Palm Sunday, April 1st, 2007. Palm Sunday triggered the beginning of the end for Jesus. What began on Sunday... With a religious procession, ended Friday morning with a public display of state terror. Excited children waving palm branches were quickly forgotten when violent mobs shouted death chants. By Good Friday, Jesus' disciples argued among themselves about who was the greatest, Judas betrayed him, Peter denied knowing him, all his disciples fled except for the women, and Rome employed all the brutal means at its disposal to crush an insurgent movement, rendition, interrogation, torture, mockery, humiliation, and then a sadistic execution designed as a calculated social deterrent to any other troublemakers who might challenge imperial authority. But just why did Jesus die? At least one answer emerges when you connect three data points from his birth, his public debut, and then his death on Good Friday. To backtrack to his nativity, in her Magnificat, Mary proclaimed that with the birth of her son, God would, quote, bring down rulers from their thrones fill the hungry with good things, and send the rich away empty-handed, End quote. Luke chapter 1, 52 to 53. The aged Simon also uttered a dark prophecy to the young mother. We read in Luke 2, 34, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against. After his birth, Jesus vanished into historical obscurity and then 30 years later burst onto the scene with the provocative declaration in Mark chapter 1, Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. There's a new rule and a new reign, said Jesus. Mary's song about toppling political and economic powers And Jesus' inauguration of an alternate social vision set him on a collision course with Rome. And so, after three years of itinerant preaching, teaching, and healing that focused on the poor, the imprisoned, the blind, and all who were oppressed, his family declared him insane, and the authorities had finally had enough. The Passion Narratives for this week explain why. Jesus was executed for three reasons, says Luke chapter 23, 1 and 2. We found this fellow subverting the nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. In John's Gospel, the angry mob warned Pilate, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. John 19, verse 12. So why did Jesus die? He's subverting our nation. He opposes Caesar. You can't befriend both Jesus and Caesar. Jesus' triumphal entry into the clogged streets of Jerusalem on Good Friday (coughs) was thus a highly symbolic and provocative act, an enacted parable or street theater that dramatized his subversive mission. He didn't ride a donkey because he was too tired to walk or because he wanted a good view of the crowds. The Oxford scholar George Caird once characterized Jesus' triumphal entry as more of a planned political demonstration than the religious celebration that we sentimentalize today. Given that the Roman state always made a show of force during the Jewish Passover, when pilgrims thronged to Jerusalem to celebrate their own political liberation from Egypt, Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan imagine not one but two political processions entering Jerusalem that Friday morning in the spring of A.D. 30. In a blatant parody of imperial politics, King Jesus descended the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem from the east in fulfillment of Zechariah's ancient prophecy. Look, your king is coming to you. Gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Matthew 21 5, Zechariah 9 9. From the west, the Roman governor Pilate entered Jerusalem with all the pomp of state power. Pilate's brigade showcased Rome's military might, its power, and glory. Jesus' triumphal entry, by stark contrast, was what Borg and Crossing called an anti-imperial, anti-triumphal, counter-procession of peasants that proclaimed an alternate and subversive social vision called the kingdom of God. Today, people argue about who's subverting our nation. A friend in Florida forwarded me an email that blamed Muslims in America for our problems. Others attacked evangelicals as so-called Christian fascists. For a long time now, others have taken aim at secular humanists and liberal Democrats. On his nationally televised program, Jerry Falwell blamed the wickedness of pagans, abortionists, feminists, gays, lesbians, the ACLU, and People for the American Way for the 9-11 disaster, which he construed as God's judgment on America. Pat Robertson, who was a guest on the show, nodded in agreement and said, Well, I totally concur. Or again, the greed of corporate executives and the sleaze of Hollywood movies make easy targets. But I have never seen or heard anyone blaming Jesus, that Jesus is the one who, in Luke's words, is subverting our nation, but that was the allegation that sent Jesus to Golgotha. Twenty years after Jesus died, charges of subversion dogged his first followers. In Philippi, a mob dragged Paul and Silas before the city magistrates, then had them stripped, beaten, severely flogged, and imprisoned. We read in Acts chapter 16, 20 and 21, These men are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. In Thessalonica, we read that some bad characters from the marketplace dragged Jason and some fellow believers before the city officials, shouting, These men have caused trouble all over the world, and they've now come here. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Acts 17, verse 7. Paul was persecuted by the political powers, not coddled and patronized by them. In Antioch, he was run out of town. In Iconium, Luke writes, quote, the people of the city were divided, end quote, about Paul's gospel. And so Jews and Gentiles joined forces to stone Paul and his companions, Acts fourteen four and 5. What were Jesus and his first followers subverting? We know that the earliest believers were labeled atheists because they refused to participate in Rome's cult of imperial worship. And also they were called a third race that distinguished itself from the first race, Greeks and Romans, and the second race, Jews. The question deserves a lifetime of reflection, but the simple summary of Borg and Crossan also makes a good beginning. Jesus' alternate reign and rule, they argue subverted major aspects of the way most societies in history have been organized. Whether ancient or modern, they say, most societies have normalized a status quo of number one, political oppression that marginalizes ordinary people, number two, economic exploitation whereby the rich take advantage of the poor, and number three, religious legitimation that insists that, quote, God wants things this way, end quote. It's easy to think of other components of the cultural status quo that Jesus might subvert, like ethnic stereotypes, media propaganda, gender roles, consumerism, or our degradation of planet Earth. On Palm Sunday, Jesus invites us to join his subversive counter-procession into all the world. But he calls us not to just any subversion, subversion for its own sake, or to some new and improved political agenda. Rather, Christian subversion takes as its model Jesus himself. We read in the epistle this week that Jesus, dying to self and the many demons of egoism and living to sacrificially serve others will prove itself as sufficiently and radically subversive. And so Paul instructs us in his epistle to the Philippians for this week, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And now for further reflection Consider this snapshot from the year A.D. 130, which is found in the epistle to Diognetus. It captures the ambiguous space that Christians of that day occupied in their society. For the Christians are distinguished from other people, neither by country nor language nor the customs which they observe, For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor do they lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive people, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of any merely human doctrines. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them has determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as resident aliens, As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of birth as a land of strangers. They marry, as do all others, they beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all people and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death, And restored to life. They are poor yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are spoken evil of and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. The Epistle to Diognetus, from about the year 130, For books this week, I review Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan. The title of the book is The Last Week, a Day-by-Day Account of Jesus' Final Week in Jerusalem. San Francisco, Harper, 2006, 220 pages. In this simple exposition, written for a general audience, two leading New Testament scholars use the Gospel of Mark who explained what happened to Jesus during his final week. They use Mark because most scholars consider it the earliest of the four Gospels, the primary source for Matthew and Luke, and because when you read carefully, you see that Mark details the last eight days of Holy Week, from Palm Sunday through Easter Sunday. He even specifies morning and evening for three of these days, Palm Sunday, chapter 11, verse 1, when they were approaching Jerusalem. Monday, chapter 11, verse 12, on the following day. Tuesday, chapter 11, verse 20, in the morning. Wednesday, chapter 14, verse 1, it was two days before the Passover. Monday, Thursday, chapter 14, verse 12, On the first day of unleavened bread, Good Friday, chapter 15, verse 1, as soon as it was morning, Holy Saturday, chapter 15, 42, and chapter 16, verse 1, the Sabbath, and then Easter Sunday, of course, chapter 16, verse 2, very early on the first day of the week. Mark even describes what happened at five three-hour intervals on Good Friday. This book, then, consists of eight chapters, one for each day of Holy Week. For Borg and Crossan, the Gospels are not records of straightforward historical facts remembered by the author, but rather stylized interpretations of the believing community. There's an element of truth in this, of course. You could say the same about nearly all written history. But I'm sometimes dubious about historical reconstructions 2,000 years after the events that claim to know more and to know better than the first witnesses, or that do not give compelling explanations about how and why the first recorders got things so badly wrong and yet attracted the allegiance of so many converts who must have known they were wrong about the literal facts. Borg and Crossan do a wonderful job of illuminating the religious background of first century Judaism, and especially the centrality of the temple, and the cultural and political background of imperial Rome. They show how the biblical texts in these two contexts interact, If you've read any of Borg's many books, it will come as no surprise that the authors understand the passion of Jesus not as a sacrifice or substitution, as it has been understood by much, if not most, of Christendom, but as an incarnation of God's justice, which subverts the status quo of political oppression, economic exploitation, and religious legitimation. One final observation, the 2007 edition of this book has the rather sensational subtitle What the Gospels Really Teach About Jesus' Final Days in Jerusalem. Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan, The Last Week, a day-by-day account of Jesus' final week in Jerusalem. For film this week, I review a wonderful film called June Bug from the year 2005. Almost every turn that this film takes deepens its plot and develops its characters right up to the very enigmatic last sentence. The cosmopolitan Madeline, who grew up in a diplomatic family traveling the world, goes to rural North Carolina in order to sign an eccentric artist to her Chicago gallery. North Carolina is also the family home of her husband, George. There are plenty of laughs as Madeline meets George's family, but also plenty of poignancy as family dynamics, roles, eccentricities, and cultures clash. The film and its characters walk a thin line between suspicion of the outsider elitist condescension at the local yokels and a mutual growing and genuine admiration for each other. It's very easy to love every character in this film despite their many issues. I grew up in North Carolina and have traveled in 30 or 40 countries and I will say this, this film is spot on. Junebug from the year 2005 And then finally, for poetry this week, for Palm Sunday, we've posted a poem by G.K. Chesterton, who lived from 1874 to 1936. The title of Chesterton's poem is The Donkey, in which he captures Palm Sunday from the perspective of the donkey that Jesus rode. When fishes flew and forests walked and figs grew upon thorn, some moment when the moon was blood, then surely I was born. With monstrous head and sickening cry, and ears like errant wings, the devil's walking parody on all four-footed things. The tattered outlaw of the earth, of ancient crooked will, Starve, scourge, deride me, I am dumb, I keep my secret still. Fools, for I also had my hour, one far fierce hour and sweet. There was a shout about my ears, in palms before my feet. The Donkey, by G.K. Chesterton. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, April 1st, 2007, Palm Sunday. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.